It's Friday, July 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Facebook and YouTube have been overrun with bogus cancer treatment claims, and tech platforms are tweaking algorithms and cutting off advertising for pages and videos promoting dubious information. The problem is that the amount of misleading info is so extensive and publishing on these platforms is so easy, it's hard to get a handle on it. Daniela Hernandez, digital science editor at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, data brokers are selling your secrets and now states are trying to stop them. Vermont has implemented a new data broker registry, but it is highlighting the difficulties of regulating these secretive firms. Douglas McMillan, business reporter for The Washington Post, joins us for how data brokers buy and sell the personal information of millions of Americans. Finally, the military may soon have to be on a diet and might have to ban beer and pizza. The military is studying whether the keto diet can help lower obesity rates and boost the physical and mental performance of soldiers in the field. But in order for this to work, soldiers may have to stick to the diet even in their off time. Christine Froba, reporter for the Military Times, joins us for Keto in the Military. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The FDA came out and said this alone is not a good screening mechanism for breast cancer. These channels online say, yes, it's just as good, if not better, than traditional mammograms. There's this tension between what medical institutions are saying versus what these people are claiming. Joining us now is Daniela Hernandez, digital science editor for The Wall Street Journal. You can file this story under don't believe anything you see on the Internet. Facebook and YouTube are being overrun with bogus cancer treatment claims right now. And the big tech platforms are trying to tweak things so that these things don't get a lot more play. The problem is that the amount of misinformation on these platforms is so extensive and publishing to these platforms is so easy that it can be hard to really contain it all. Tell us a little bit about what Facebook and YouTube are doing to help out in this area. There are tech companies that they're taking a tech approach in the way that they serve up content. Let's focus on, I guess, Facebook first. We all have a news feed when we sign on to onto Facebook and it serves up content that their algorithms think that would be interesting to us based on things that we have liked before. So what they're doing is that any post that they say promote misleading information or have bogus medical health claims, what they're doing is they're downplaying those. That means that they are less likely to be served to you in your in your newsfeed. They're not eliminating the content. They're just making it less visible. YouTube is also demonetizing some of these channels that promote misinformation information. What that means is that, you know, when you're a popular YouTube channel, you can make extra money on ads that get served up before the videos play. And so they're taking away that opportunity from some of these providers. Now tell us what people are posting, because there's a, a bunch of different things. Some of these, uh, there's baking soda injections as part of cancer treatments. Other people are saying, you know, don't get mammograms. Instead, try other therapies when screening for breast cancer, things like that. What kind of these bogus cancer treatment claims? are being put out there. The FDA put out this alert earlier this year, alerting consumers that, you know, there is this other screening tool called thermography. It basically is another kind of imaging tool that looks at blood flow and heat near the surface of the of the skin. And the FDA came out and said, you know, 
this alone is not a good screening mechanism for breast cancer. These channels online or Facebook pages, some of them say, yes, it's, it's just as good, if not better than traditional mammograms. And so there's this tension between what the medical institutions are saying versus what these people are claiming. Part of the problem that experts say is that people are seeing these videos and some of these videos are getting millions of hits, hundreds of thousands of hits. That's right. And people then go to the doctor with this misinformation in their head and then they want to try some of these alternative things or, you know, whatever it is. And they are pressing for these types of treatments rather than going through with what the medical professionals are saying. What tends to happen is that they will try some alternative treatments like either like vitamins or essential oils, these other things. Sometimes they're completely benign. And so, you know, the doctors are just happy to know what their patients are doing. So they're well informed. But there are certain cases where alternative treatments can interfere with traditional care. And in that, in, in those cases, it's really important for the doctors to know it could exacerbate side effects or just diminish the efficacy of a standard treatment. So doctors are worried about that. Sometimes, you know, in the cases where patients do forego treatment completely, and I, I talked to at least one patient who, who had that experience, by the time that they come back to their doctor and say, hey, like, I actually do want to get treatment, this other thing isn't working, it could be too late. And so then they're stuck with a worsening case of cancer. There at the journal, you guys did an investigation into all of this and tried to quantify the reach of several of these social media accounts that promoted these unvalidated cancer therapies. And even the people that are putting this stuff out there, they're making tons of money. There was one doctor you mentioned in your story specifically, I mean, not even a doctor, I guess. His name was Robert Young, who was on a lot of these videos. He was making about $5 million a year before he got convicted for practicing medicine without a license. These people are not always the best actors putting this stuff out there. That particular case really stood out to us because here you had a case where you had somebody who had a criminal conviction for practicing medicine without a license in California. And even in that context, this person was still able to have a pretty robust social media presence on Facebook and YouTube and Instagram. And so it just goes to show that it's just it's really, really hard to monitor this. And also for the tech companies, you know, where do they draw the line in terms of what content is, quote unquote, admissible or not? This guy's are young. He sells supplements, but Obviously, not all supplement sellers are horrible people, you know, and for trying to deceive patients. It's a difficult problem and one that the tech companies are thinking deeply about. Daniela Hernandez, digital science editor at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. not like Facebook, which is basically mining all the activity that you're doing on Facebook or on your mobile device and then selling that to advertisers. Joining us now is Douglas McMillan, business reporter for The Washington Post. We're going to be talking about data brokers selling your secrets, selling all of your information. Right now, Vermont is one of the first states who has a data broker registry where these companies have to sign up, notifying everybody that they are buying and selling the personal information of a lot of people. The goal of this was to find a way where people can go and see if their data is out there and then they can get it cleared out if they want. But there's been a lot of difficulties in regulating these companies. What do we know about this? This 
Data Broker Registry. It's really the first attempt to do this in the country. It opened earlier this year, and it has more than 100 companies that have signed up to basically fill out a a short questionnaire about, yes, I am a data broker, and if you want to opt out of being in my registry, these are the steps you have to follow. That's the basic information they were asked to provide. Unfortunately, Vermont doesn't seem to have thought through how you can make that information easily available to the public. Essentially, you have to go in and search for the name of the company to find a PDF that you can then scan through to find this information. And when when you do find the, the PDF, it's typically written in legalese. So these data brokers, most of them have had their lawyers write the answers to these things, which it it tells you everything you need to know about this whole attempt to regulate these companies. This is an industry that is used to operating in secrecy, and they're not used to being accountable or beholden to the public at all. So the first attempt to do this, it's not that surprising that what you get is a bunch of legal gobbledygook. One of the companies that you mentioned in your article is called Amerilist. And for $150, they'll make a list available of information on 5,000 people that could include home address, age, religion, education level, income. So this is kind of how it works. I mean, for a single person, your data can be very important to you. But when they're selling it, they're selling it by the thousands for really not that much money. It's pennies for a single person. Basically, we wanted to run an experiment where we wanted to see what you get if you buy one of these lists. Typically, it's a marketer would buy one of these lists because, you know, I'm a marketer and I want to go out and reach everybody who falls into a certain category. Like, I want to reach everybody who's 20 to 35 who is in the L.A. area. And you can go out and you can buy that list. It's probably going to be you know, millions of people. And it will basically come to you as a spreadsheet. And that spreadsheet contains some information that maybe you had entered somewhere in a survey. Maybe some of that information is obtained through your credit card purchases or your shopping history at grocery cards if you have a loyalty card at a grocery store. But some of the interesting data that we found in the list that we bought was what's called inferred data, which is yes. basically it's not actual factual data about the these people, it was it's basically a guess. So these companies are guessing things like your race and your religion, and that's done by, that might sound like a sophisticated thing to do. It's not. It's basically guessing based on your first and last name and where you live. Uh, if you're likely to be Hispanic, if you're likely to be white, if your name is O'Connell, then it guesses you're likely to be Irish. Right. So it's, um, and that's probably it's, why uh, you get a lot of misleading ads sometimes, because yes. some of this information is just kind of inferred, as you said. So some yeah. of these data providers will have a set series of data points, like your name, your age, and all that stuff. Then they'll overlay data from other places, like Experian and another company called Ethnic Technologies, And then they'll make these guesses and they build these pretty detailed profiles of people. And then that's what they're selling out. It's sort of an assembly line of different data broker companies who are working together. It's not like Facebook, which is basically mining all the activity that you're doing on Facebook or on your mobile device and then selling that to advertisers. This is sort of a different system. Dozens of companies who most of them you do not know their name even, buying and selling your data from one to the next. And it's that lack of transparency and lack of the ability for any reasonable person to go out and find what's being done with their data that has, you know, I think a lot of regulators and a lot of privacy advocates upset and wanting to try to make some rules around this. One of the things that really confounds a lot of people, they'll say, how do these people get my data? It's part one, you're giving it away and you don't know who you're giving it to and what they're going to do with it. And then two, you know, a lot of these privacy policies are kind of written in a way where you're really not 
either going to read it or you just can't understand it. Tell us how some of these people get our data. You use an example of people going to websites like privatestudentloans.com, howtogetin.com, gradloans.com. Yeah, this is a network of sites. It's owned by a company called Advisors. It turns out that's owned by a company called College Loans Corporation. And essentially, they've set up all these shell sites that are designed to entice high school students into entering their personal information into a survey. And they do that by saying, hey, if you enter these surveys, you're going to get a chance to win a $10,000 scholarship. And what happens after you hit submit on that survey is pretty interesting. We found that that data is then sold off to a company called ALC, which is most your listeners probably have never heard of. I had never heard of it right. before. They repackage that data. They overlay it with data from another company called Experian that tries to guess some of your demographics. They also overlay it with, as you said, this other company called Ethnic Technologies, which guesses their race and religion. And they sell this all as a package to marketers who want to reach what they call college-bound students. So this is an interesting kind of example of this data assembly line at work. Yeah. And as those students signed up for this site and, and, and filled out the surveys, they probably didn't know it, but they were agreeing to become part of this world. Vermont is trying to take a crack at this. There's a, a round of other states that are also trying to get a handle on accountability for, for these data brokers. There's a movement in this country and really around the world. Europe actually led the way last year with its data protection rules. California is going to set to start its privacy regulation at the beginning of next year. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like. There are a number of states who are trying to regulate this, and there's a push for potentially a federal law. And one of the, the things that people are talking about could be part of the federal law is a national data broker registry. So this is definitely a top of the agenda item for anyone who's talking about online privacy regulation. Certainly a lot of these efforts have been focused on Facebook and their recent string of scandals. But I think you're also going to hear a lot of focus on data brokers and what's called third-party data or, or data that is held by a company that didn't get it directly from you. That is the lifeblood of this data broker industry. And if regulations start to outlaw third-party data or put severe restrictions on it, you could see these data broker companies really struggle and potentially go away in the near term. Douglas McMillan, business reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me anytime. Just the crackers and MRE has 27 grams of carbs, and the wow. crackers are very popular on their own. Joining us now is Christine Froba, reporter for the Military Times. The U.S. military is studying whether a keto diet can help lower obesity rates, boost soldiers' physical and mental performance in the field. There was a study done at the Ohio State University. They were using military members as part of this first ever keto study that they did. They found that the people showed weight loss and improvements in body composition. But there's a lot of questions that are going into this. Tell us about the study. Tell us about what the military is is thinking about with regards to this. It's all about augmenting human resiliency in the field and enhancing physical capabilities. And that's what Dr. Volek was studying and he was applying it to military. 
So the keto diet, a lot of people know about it already. It's high in fat, low in carbohydrates. And they're saying that this could be uh, particularly effective and beneficial to Navy SEALs because of the way the body handles oxygen when you're in ketosis. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Dr. Sanders delivered this study, and it wasn't on transcript or video, but what she said was that by limiting carbohydrates and relying instead on protein and fat, it would allow divers to stay underwater longer at deeper depths for a longer time. It would avoid seizures. And she also talked about it in conjunction with swimmers and submariners. And then I have been told by authorities in the office that Green Berets also have divers. So who knows what they plan on testing this study on. Now, this all seems well and good for the normal person. You can decide to go on a diet, do this diet if you like. But when it comes to the military, there's a lot more that goes into play. There's a lot of difficulties. There's even difficulties in maybe forcing people to do this in their off time, because in order for this diet to work, you have to kind of be in this constant state of ketosis, and it takes a few days to get into that. So they would have to force service members to follow this diet when they're not on duty. There'd have to be testing. What do we know about that front? Well, Oscar, that's, I think, the most interesting part that you brought up. Dr. Sanders even said that the military doesn't have the authority to tell people what they can eat. She said that she's discussing it as a technology question. But I've spoken to kinesiologists in my reporting just recently, and they say that you have to be in a state of ketosis for at least a month before you can get over the keto flu and get to your optimal physical results. And they even recommended as close to six months where you'd have to be in complete ketosis before you'd be at the Olympic athlete capabilities of, say, a Navy SEAL. Wow. Just the time commitment to this is pretty incredible. This is also would have to revamp some of the MREs, the meals ready to eat that they make. The military just came out with a very popular pepperoni pizza MRE. You would have to eliminate that because that's, you know, high in carbohydrates. I couldn't offer an opinion on that, but I think that might cause some problems if they got rid of the pizza, to tell you the truth. MREs are 51% carbs. Just the crackers and MRE has 27 grams of carbs, and the wow. crackers are very popular on their own, which come with that delicious spackle nacho cheese that everybody is so familiar with who's ever worn a uniform. What are you going to apply the nacho cheese to? Cauliflower in Iraq? <laughs> I don't want cauliflower with my spackled cheese. To do a, a big drastic change like this, it would have to revamp even uh, the food that they serve at the, the mess halls also. Uh, they'd have to take away pasta, maybe put in that zucchini spiral pasta, all sorts of stuff would have to change. Who knows if there's a willingness to do that? It could be very expensive, right? I would think it'd be very expensive. I've eaten at quite a few defects myself in Mississippi, and I can tell you what, biscuits are the most popular part of the buffet right after the bacon, but I don't know if they'd want, what are they going to put their country gravy and sausages <laughs> right. and all the stuff they sop up with their bread. I, I would like to see how they would try to change that in the DFAC, which is the actual name for the cafeteria in the military. Has anybody at the Pentagon or other military officials commented on this study, you know, maybe saying this is something we'd want to pursue? The only information we have is what Ms. Sanders delivered at Suffolk at the, at the conference. And we have not heard back from the Pentagon regarding our story. We have had a lot of feedback from military service members, some pro, some con. They have very strong feelings about the keto diet. Most people, it would seem so anyway. And in that response, was it positive or negative? I mean, they have a strong, well, they have a strong response. Mm -hmm. Is they saying they'd be willing to do it or probably not still? <laughs> From what I've heard, special ops are willing to do anything. They're hardcore. Yeah. They're going to do what they need to do to get the job done. I mean, 
I've heard that they're in oxygen deprivation tanks. Wow. You know, it's part of their training. It's amazing. Marines seem to be in favor of keto. I know a lot of Marines who do it on their own, and they've been following the diet for over six months. They love it. Other people, not so much. Christine Froba, reporter for the Military Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.